we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus the Mediator of a New Testament or a New Covenant, referring to the blood of Christ on the cross poured out for the forgiveness of all of our sins, cleansing us from all sins, permanently purifying us from all sins, bringing us close to God in constant, continual fellowship with God because of what Christ has done. And this is teaching number 58. It's part two of marriage, sex, adultery, and money. And tonight we're looking at the second part of these verses. It comes out of Hebrews 13, four through five. And it reads, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. We studied that last week. We're starting with verse 5 of Hebrews 13 tonight. It says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. That's out of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, the quote of Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Some versions there, uh, it's I will not leave you, I will not fail you, I will not abandon you. <clears throat> the NIV translates it, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. But in this study, we're going to be looking at keep your lives free from the love of money. And it was written in AD 65 or sometimes around AD 65. And, and we think about money these days. They needed money during their time as, as well in AD 65. They needed money to provide for the needs of oneself. They needed money to provide for their families. They needed money maybe to help other people. But just as in our day, money can become a problem, in their, their day as well, money could definitely become a problem for people and then lead to many problems, the love of money. News stories today are filled with headlines, even recently, of people whose lives have been destroyed by a love of money. And we're not talking about making money. Make, we all have to make money. We all have to meet our needs. Everybody needs money. It's biblical to work. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, there's somebody who's been stealing, and Paul says, tell the guy that's been stealing it. I think it's actually maybe chapter 4 of Ephesians. But it says, tell the person that's been stealing to stop stealing, to go get a job, to go to work, to make money, and to use his money for doing good rather than living a life where he's stealing other people's possessions or other people's money. So there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with having money. But the problem is the love of money. And we're going to explore what that means in this study, the love of money. There's a positive side to money. And the positive side of money is this. People make and spend money to provide for their own needs and the needs of their families. People use money to do good for others. And then people give money to support churches or ministries and missionaries. So in the time of Jesus, people financially supported his ministry. In the time of Paul, people financially supported Paul's ministry. And people financially support ministries and churches and missionaries today. So the problem is, is not money. Again, the problem is the love of money, which leads us to the negative side of money. People's love of money can temporarily harm their lives and the lives of others. 
people's love of money can permanently ruin somebody's life. And again, we've seen that in our headlines recently, this love of money destroying people's lives as it comes out in the news stories. Paul writes about how money can harm or ruin or destroy a person's life in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. And Paul writes this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. That to me is the teachings about money that they've learned that goes with being a believer in God and a believer in Jesus. They've wandered from the faith and they pierced themselves with many griefs. So what do we learn in these verses about the pain the love of money can produce in a person's life? Because we see in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, that the love of money can produce tremendous pain in a person's life, which is why I think the writer of Hebrews says, keep yourself free from the love of money. The writer of Hebrews understood that the love of money can produce much pain in someone's life. So what do we learn in the verses, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, about the pain that the love of money can produce in a person's life? Well, we see in these verses that a deep passion for money pulls people into temptation. The verse we read is, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. So what's temptation? Temptation is making unethical financial decisions that are enticing. So someone who has a love for money is enticed, is tempted to make some type of decision to get more money, but it's an ethical decision. It's a decision that can ultimately lead to destruction, harm, or ruin. So a deep passion for money pulls people into temptation. We also see in this verse that a deep passion for money puts people into addictions. It says those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. So this is making personal financial decisions that are enslaving. I mean, think about the people whose lives are totally under the control of this love of money. They they become enslaved to, trapped by, addicted to this love of money. Sometimes in the world of gambling, it started off, I think, for people who are addicted to gambling, it started off as this desire for money and an easy way to get money. But then eventually it led to an addiction, which the excitement of gambling is enslaving to a person. It really ceases to be about making money, but it's more about the excitement of the the bet that one places on a game or or whatever they're betting on, it can definitely become enslaving or addicting to a person. And then we see in these verses that a deep passion for money plunges people into destruction. 
Paul writes this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires, which lead to foolish and harmful decisions. So those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge. The word plunge is, is you can picture somebody jumping into the water or something heavy going into the water and the water is engulfing the object that went into the water. And so Paul's saying that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So this is making financial decisions that are engulfing. So if somebody is consistently, because of this unethical, unhealthy love of money, is making financial decisions that are destructive in their lives, eventually it just kind of caves in on them. They, they become overwhelmed with the problems that this love of money brings into their lives. And then finally, we see Paul saying that a deep passion for money, which is this love of money, this deep passion for money, pierces people with painful emotions, sorrow, and regret. Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, that's this deep passion for money, this unethical, unhealthy passion for money. They've wandered from the faith, that's the teachings about finances that are associated with scriptures, the Bible, have wandered from the faith. It isn't a loss of salvation. It, it isn't that they've wandered from Jesus or they wandered away from, from a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, but they've wandered from the body of truth that is presented in Scripture about how to make money, how to manage money, how to grow money, how to make good financial decisions, which is all through the book of Proverbs. So, it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So this is making financial decisions that are endangering. Eventually, the compounding effect of many poor financial decisions that originates from this love of money, this unhealthy view of money, these unethical decisions as it relates to money, eventually the compounding effect of all this is ruin. It's piercing themselves. It's many griefs, much pain. Deep pain is the word for grief. Let's look a little bit more into what is the love of money. What is the love of money? Number one, the love of money is a deep passion to seek meaning in life through money, which we see that in Ecclesiastes when God gave Solomon an assignment to seek out the purpose of life and to report back to God uh, what the purpose of life is. The assignment was seek out the purpose of life apart from God. So what God did with Solomon is he gave Solomon all the wealth that he needed. He gave Solomon all the wisdom. And so with a full amount of wealth and full wisdom, 
Solomon began to search for meaning and purpose to life apart from God. And his conclusion when he came back was meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Life has no meaning apart from God. And here's a person who had all the money to pursue anything that he wanted. And he comes back with the conclusion that life has no meaning apart from God, regardless of how much money a person has to utilize to experience anything they want to experience. So the love of money is a deep passion to seek meaning in life through money. Number two, the love of money is a deep passion to seek happiness in life through money. Number three, the love of money is a deep passion to seek excitement in life through money. And we see people doing this all the time. Uh, People are seeking meaning to life, happiness in life, and excitement to life through money. But most people don't have the wisdom that Solomon had to evaluate their relationship with money and does it really bring meaning? Does it really bring true happiness? Does it really bring excitement in a person's life that is healthy and that is good? So this deep passion for money can cause deep pain in the lives of people, which is one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So what does it mean to keep our lives free from the love of money? Well, to keep our lives free from the love of money is to not allow the love of money to be what consumes our thoughts and desires and controls our decisions because it's where we derive our purpose in life. So to keep our lives free from the love of money is to not allow the love of money, which is the love of money is seeking meaning to life through money, seeking happiness in life through money, and seeking to find excitement in life through money so that it consumes our thoughts and desires and controls our decisions. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, keep yourselves free from the love of money. How do we do that? How do we keep ourselves free from the love of money? I think the answer is found in Hebrews 13, 5. Again, he writes, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, there's the solution right there. How do we keep ourselves free from the love of money? Because of God. What people are seeking through the love of money They're really seeking God. They're seeking meaning to life, which is only found in God. They're seeking true happiness, which is only found in God. They're seeking really the excitement of knowing God can't be found in money. It's it's only in God can we really truly have a life that escapes meaningless and unhappiness and this boredom with life. So the writer of Hebrews says, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, there's his answer, there's the solution, because God has said, and the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy 31.6 because he's writing to a Jewish audience who's very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. 
in Deuteronomy 31.6, because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you, or I will not fail you, or I will not abandon you. So the writer is saying the, the solution to the problem of the love of money controlling our lives and ruining people's lives is found in knowing that God is with us. So we keep ourselves free from the love of money by, one, being aware of the presence of God in our lives, that God is the true source of meaning in life. God is the true source of happiness in life. And God is the true source of excitement in life, the excitement of knowing God, of being in relationship with God. And and as it relates to happiness, happiness is, it's difficult because in this life, life happens. And life is hard and life is painful. And we're not happy within those situations. Those situations are discouraging, depending on what the situation is, depressing, difficult for us. Um, Life is very hard. So I don't want to paint a picture that once we're in relationship with God, we're always going to be happy. I think there is a a sense of, of type of happiness that comes from knowing God, but always being happy and I don't think that's realistic in our lives because there's pain, there's hurt, there's heartache. But we keep ourselves free from the love of money by being aware of the presence of God in our lives. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Or I will not fail you. I will not abandon you. We also keep ourselves free from the love of money by being at peace. This is the idea of contentment. Be content with what you have because... God said, never will I leave you or never will I fail you or I will not abandon you. We keep ourselves free from the love of money by being at peace with what we have because of the presence of God in our lives. So we've discovered in this relationship with God through faith in Jesus, a sense of contentment in life, meaning in life, purpose in life where we're not seeking after possessions for purpose. We're not seeking through pleasures for purpose. We're not seeking through projects and pursuits for purpose. Our purpose to life is found in a relationship with God, which comes through faith in Jesus, which then produces peace in our lives. So because we are aware of the presence of God in our lives, then we can be content or at peace with what we have. Now, Paul writes about contentment in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He writes the following, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. For if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he starts this off with, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's start with contentment. What is contentment? 
Contentment is internal peace because of a spiritual peace that results from knowing God. That's contentment. It's this internal peace in life that I don't have to have more possessions to have purpose. I don't have to have more pursuits. I don't have to complete more projects. I don't have to be around the right people. I don't have to have the pleasures and the possessions to have purpose because my purpose in life comes from knowing God through faith in Jesus, which then gives us spiritual peace. Now, what is spiritual peace? Spiritual peace is knowing that someone is forgiven by God of all sins, innocent before God as if one had never sinned, and loved by God even though we may have many sins. That's spiritual peace. Is, is knowing I'm forgiven. I, we can't have peace in our relationship with God if we're not confident in forgiveness. If we're seeking forgiveness every day, if we're constantly asking God for forgiveness on a daily basis, and many believers, that's what they've been taught. They've been taught to consistently ask God for forgiveness so that they can stay close to God, so that they can stay in fellowship with God, which that teaching leads to a lack of spiritual peace. Because how can I have spiritual peace in my life if I do not know that I am fully forgiven? It's impossible. We'll always be wondering if we're forgiven. We'll be doubting forgiveness. So spiritual peace is knowing that I am forgiven by God of all my sins. I'm innocent before God as if I've never sinned. And I'm loved by God, even though I may have sins in my life at this moment. Now, how do we get spiritual peace? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, gives us the answer to how we get spiritual peace. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. The word justified is used many times in Romans. It's a legal standing before God of innocence. Since we have been declared innocent of all sins, by God, through faith in Jesus. So once a person trusts in Jesus, once a person puts his or her faith in Jesus, they recognize that they've sinned, they admit that they've sinned, they admit that they need Jesus for forgiveness and righteousness. And then once a person places his or her trust in what Jesus did for them at the cross, and what is it Jesus did? Jesus took the guilt of our sins upon himself at the cross. And when a person places his or her trust in Jesus, they receive the innocence of Jesus. Jesus took our guilt upon himself at the cross. Jesus took our sinfulness upon himself at the cross. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive his innocence. We receive his righteousness so that now we're justified. We're innocent of God of all charges of sin against us. We're righteous before God as if we had never, ever sinned in our lives. Therefore, since we have been justified, that's innocence before God, righteousness before God as if we've never sinned, through faith in Jesus because he took our guilt, he took our sinfulness, gives us his innocence, gives us his righteousness in return when we trust in Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have, here it is, peace with God. 
Our peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ, is what Paul writes. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God in this verse is the awareness in a person's life that they're righteous before God, they're innocent before God, they're forgiven by God. How can I enjoy a peaceful relationship with God if I'm doubting forgiveness or I'm being told by the ministry that I'm in or the church that I'm in or the small group that I'm in or the Sunday school class that I'm in, or if I'm being told by a mentor that you have to consistently and continually ask God to forgive you on a daily basis so that you can be close to God and be in fellowship with God. I mean, all that does is produce a lack of peace in a person's life. And the reason I can say that with such confidence is that was me at one point in time. I was listening to pastors tell me you need to consistently ask for forgiveness. Uh, My small group leader was saying you need to consistently ask for forgiveness so you're not out of fellowship with God. The mentor that I was meeting with once a week was telling me you need to consistently ask for forgiveness so you can be close to God and in fellowship with God. And so from the church I was at to the ministry that I was in and ultimately on staff with to the small group that I was a part of and the person mentoring me all were telling me the same thing. If you want to be confident in your relationship with God, if you want to be in fellowship with God, then this is what you have to do. You have to seek forgiveness on a daily basis because unconfessed sins result in being out of fellowship with God. Now, the problem with that teaching is a big problem. It's not in Scripture. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible, but it's very traditional and it's widespread in Christianity. We see in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, I can't be justified and not be forgiven. I can't be not guilty before God and not be forgiven by God. Forgiveness is absorbed into this word justified. It's a part of the word justified. It's we're innocent, we're righteous, we're not guilty. The only way to be innocent before God is to be forgiven. The only way to be righteous before God is to be forgiven. So therefore, since we have been, it's past tense, have been, it's it's a past tense decision of God to declare a person righteous and innocent before him when they place their faith in Jesus. It's complete, it's finished, it's done, and we're forever justified through faith in Jesus. We have peace with God. There's nothing between God and me that can bring me out of fellowship with God. There's nothing between God and a believer that can cause a person to be out of fellowship or not be forgiven. We are at peace with God. Why? Because we are forgiven. We are innocent. We are righteous because of what Jesus did for us at the cross, which is what Paul says. We have peace with God through or because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what he did for us at the cross, we have full forgiveness. We have complete cleansing of sins. We are righteous because he took our sinfulness. We are innocent because he took our guilt. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment I place my focus on myself to be at peace with God, the moment I focus on me, it's going to lead to one of two things. If I focus on me, it's going to lead to pride. Look at me. 
I'm staying consistent on asking for forgiveness. I'm maintaining fellowship with God. I'm maintaining closeness with God. Or it's going to lead to pity. I can't do it. What if I've missed a sin? What if I haven't confessed all my sins? It leads to pity. But if we'll stay focused on Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, we'll experience peace. And it always leads to praise. Look at what Jesus did for me. Because of Jesus taking my sinfulness, I now have righteousness. Because of Jesus taking my guilt, I now have innocence. Because of Jesus paying my sin debt on the cross, I now have forgiveness. And so I'm experiencing peace with God because of what Jesus did. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, that's trusting in Jesus, into this grace in which we now stand. So what is grace? Grace is the same as being justified. That leads to peace with God. Grace is all that Jesus did for us at the cross to take our sinfulness, to take our our guilt. Grace is not only Jesus taking our sinfulness and our guilt at the cross, but grace is Jesus giving us innocence and righteousness in return when we place our faith in Jesus. It's, It's gifts of grace that come to us, the gift of being justified the gift of being righteous, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of innocence, in which we now stand, which means that you and I relate to God from a position of grace. We stand in grace. We relate to God in grace. Some people will try to move us off of the foundation of grace, which is how we relate to God, confident we are forgiven, confident we are righteous, confident we are innocent, confident we are forgiven by God and in fellowship with God, some people will try to move us away from this foundation of grace to a foundation of works or a mixed foundation of works and grace, which is where the majority of believers are today. They have a foundation of works and grace, which then leads to either pride or pity. But when we're relating to God on the foundation of grace, It just always leads to praise. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did uh, for me at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking all my sinfulness upon yourself at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the guilt of my sin and giving me your innocence. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the debt for my sin and giving me forgiveness. It always leads to praise toward Jesus when we stand on the foundation of grace. So we're talking about godliness with contentment. And contentment is this, it's spiritual peace in our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. This sense of peace that we have that flows from our relationship with God, which is built on the foundation of what Jesus has done for us, this foundation of grace. So Paul talks about godliness with contentment is great gain. What does that mean? What is godliness with contentment? I think godliness with contentment is a person who has purpose in life, in this personal relationship with God, 
and as a result has a sense of peace. And the sense of peace keeps them from pursuing possessions and pleasures and profit in an unhealthy manner. This godliness, my, my source of living is God that comes from faith in Jesus. And now that I have this purpose in life that comes from faith in Jesus, I have peace in my life. And this peace keeps this person from pursuing possessions and pleasures and profit in an unethical way, keeps them from being enslaved to money or being endangered by poor decisions or being engulfed by the poor decisions or being enticed by what's out there for them financially and, and moving toward that in an unhealthy, unethical way that can really cause a lot of pain and hurt and heartache in their lives. So what is godliness with contentment? It's also a person who has perspective on life. They view life through the lens of knowing God. Their view of life is knowing God and being in relationship with God through Jesus. And when a person has this perspective on life, that life is about knowing God, they're viewing life as knowing God and being in relationship with God and their meaning and purpose to life as being in relationship with God, that perspective and that view of life will then keep that person from pursuing possessions and pleasures and profit, again, in this unhealthy manner, this unethical uh, way, this eternal perspective on life. I remember a very good friend of mine, I had never met him, and he came to the church that I was pastoring years ago. And I gave an illustration at church about developing an eternal perspective on life. And it was this illustration my friend later told me. I'd never met him before. He and his family, it was their first time at church on this Sunday. But after I got to know my friend, he said, Brad, do you remember the illustration that you gave about developing an eternal perspective on life? And I told him that I did. He said, when you gave that illustration, it totally changed my life. It's, it's, it's one of the, the main things in my life that led me to Jesus Christ was this illustration. And the illustration is this. If you can imagine life being this eternal line, this line that goes on forever, it has no beginning and it has no end, this eternal line. And on this eternal line, there is a dot. So we're imagining a line that goes on forever. This eternal line has no beginning and no end. And on this eternal line is a dot. And that dot represents earth. It represents a person's life in contrast to this eternal line. So on this eternal line is a dot. And that dot represents a person's life on earth, which if a person is able to live out a full life on earth, it may be 85 to 90 years. But whether somebody dies before 85 or after 85, it's still a dot. And the question I ask at church this Sunday was the following question that really got my friend thinking. And my friend was an unbeliever at this time. And the question that I ask is this. 
Are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? If the line represents eternity and the dot represents temporary time on earth, the line represents what's eternal. I asked that Sunday, are you living for the dot? The dot representing the pleasures that you can experience on earth, the pursuits that you can chase after on earth the possessions that you can accumulate on earth, the people that you can find and meet on earth? Are you living for what the dot offers, which is all temporal? Are you living for the line? And I begin to explain that, what does it mean to live for the line? What does it mean to live for what's eternal rather than getting caught up and entrapped and entangled by what's temporal. The line really is, represents God. God is the eternal God. He's created people. He's created us to know him. And our time on earth, God is very patient with people. He wants people to come to know him. He wants people to be in relationship with him. He created us to be in relationship with him. That's our purpose. That's our meaning to life. And so living for the line is really coming to understand that God loves me and God created me to be in relationship with me. And he wants to know me personally and that God stepped down from the line, so to speak, and he stepped to the dot earth and he became a human and he took upon the sins of the human race upon himself at the cross so that the sin barrier between God and humanity could be permanently removed, and anybody, no matter who they are or what they've done, could come into relationship with God, and now on this dot, their lives have purpose. So now that I'm on this dot, and now I know God personally through faith in Jesus, now my life has purpose on the dot. My money now has purpose on the dot. My friend was one of the top, at this time, he was the top salesperson in his field, in the area that I lived. He was chasing money. He was, he was life to him was about making sales so that he could make money. And everything changed for my friend after that. He stayed in sales and he continued to make money in sales and he continued to do very, very well and still does to this day in sales. But he's seeking to serve people in his cells. He's seeking to lift people up. He's seeking to help people. And as he does this, he's still making money, but it's not derived from this love of money. I've got to have money. It's I want to help people. I want to serve people. And as he does that, he's become very, very good and has stayed very good at what he's, he's done. But his perspective has changed on life and how he approaches his work has changed as well. You know, the Bible is very clear. There is nothing wrong about making money and managing money so that it results in profit and enables us to have possessions and to enjoy some pleasures in this life that are ethical and moral. And we find in the book of Proverbs that the the book of Proverbs is a wise financial guide for making and managing money. At the same time, the book of Proverbs provides warnings against being consumed with making money, having possessions that engulf us and 
pursuing pleasures that are endangering and destructive in our lives. So the Bible's clear. There's nothing wrong about making and managing money and having money, profiting. Nothing wrong with having possessions and enjoying possessions in life. But the Bible does warn about getting caught up in money and getting caught up in pleasures and possessions and pursuits so that they become destructive in our lives. So why is godliness with contentment great gain? We've looked at what godliness is. We've looked at what contentment is. Let's look at great gain. Why is godliness that my life is about knowing God? My meaning and purpose is about knowing God. Contentment is this peace I have that flows from knowing God. So why is godliness with contentment great gain? Well, godliness and contentment protects a person from harm and danger of being consumed and controlled by money. When a person discovers their purpose in life, which is knowing God, which results in peace in their lives that comes from knowing God, that serves as a protection against the harm and the danger of being consumed and controlled by money, being lured into unethical decisions financially, enticed by unethical decisions, endangered, engulfed by uh, the dangers of money. And godliness and contentment empowers a person to make money ethically to manage money wisely, and to make a difference with their money earthly and eternally. So that godliness, I'm I'm living in relationship with God. My life is about knowing God. I've discovered purpose to life on the dot, which is knowing God through faith in Christ, which now gives me a sense of peace in this life. And this godliness and contentment then empowers a person to make money ethically. Nothing wrong with making money. Now they're making money ethically. They're managing money wisely, and then they're using their money to make a difference, both earthly in the lives of people and eternally in the lives of people. Well, I hope this gives some insight into what the writer of Hebrews said about keep your lives free from the love of money. I hope it gives us a better understanding of why he would write that. And then how can we keep our lives free from the love of money?